0: And welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, or even ignored. Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Oliver Kemp, CEO of Prostate Cancer Research in the UK and director of PCR Inc in the USA, whose missions Oliver describes as to use our deep understanding of patient priorities and the research ecosystem to enable and implement the innovations that have greatest potential for impact and to help scientists forge the connections and collaborations which will keep their work at the cutting edge. Asked how his organization is impacting the experience of patients and clinicians, Oliver said, In the last five years, we've quintupled the amount of research that we fund. We've combined this diversification of research with a focus on ensuring that promising research reaches patients through our translational research division, which is called Proven Connect. In addition, we run patient outreach work, which aims to spread the benefits of research to everyone. We'll continue to increase the quality and quantity of our work until hundreds of thousands of men can live without fear of prostate cancer. Oliver, thank you so much for joining today. I'm very excited to hear more about what you're doing at prostate cancer research. Thank you very much, Claire. Nice to be here. So that's quite a lot that I've just described to our listeners. Quite an agenda. Let's start by maybe asking you to focus a bit on what you see as the most urgent needs in prostate cancer research right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a long list. How long have you got?
0: Well, um, maybe maybe the top three, if that would uh, if, if that would if that would suit. Sure. I suppose a replacement
1: for the PSA test. I I think, as many of your listeners will be aware, it's got its faults. It's been a a useful part of the diagnostic landscape for men with prostate cancer for a long time. But its it's faults are that one in seven of those people with normal PSA levels may have prostate cancer. So thousands of cases are missed if it's used on its own. And obviously that has life-threatening consequences as you mentioned in your introduction, the parity of care. The rates of men diagnosed with metastatic disease have rocketed by 25% as a result of COVID. In some parts of the UK, the situation is dire. The increase in North Tees has been 52% and there's been Mm. a threefold increase in the number of men who are still awaiting results. Mm. Obviously, you're far less likely to survive if you're diagnosed late. You have a Mm -hmm. 99% chance of survival if you're diagnosed early and That reduces to one in three, slightly less than one in three if you're diagnosed Uh with metastatic prostate cancer. So early diagnosis is crucial. If you ask for three approval of precision medicines, we've got two medicines that have been rejected by NICE in the last 12 months, a laparib and cluvicto, both of which um, extend life and extend the quality of life Um, instead of being on chemotherapy, then obviously being on uh, drugs that don't have such... Vicious side effects would um, be far more preferable. Cost implications obviously obviously come into the reckoning, um, but um, we're we're here to advocate for the needs of men.
0: Okay, yeah, well, that's quite a spread actually, and obviously the PSA test is quite topical at the moment, given that. Um, uh, you know, we know the arguments before and against. But what we also know is that the, the sort of ecosystem has changed as well with the um, advancement of imaging and and more precision biopsies. Do you think that will impact how PSA is used, or are you committed to you know, as you said earlier, finding an alternative to that specific test?
1: Yeah, and I think uh, if if we can find a, an alternative. That is has better specificity and sensitivity, then I think it will gradually be replaced. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that if it's used in combination with other diagnostic tools, then it can be remain part of the overall framework. But obviously the long-term aim would be to not have the issues that exist with the PSA test and replace it with something that's far better.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to consider that because, you know, we could talk about this all day, if not all week. But, you know, what is interesting is to consider what you just said um, in the context of, you know, your your second point earlier, which was the parity issue. And you cited, uh, you know, the differential in men in the north of England and, um, you know, the, the higher level of those that are um, have metastatic disease and are waiting, in fact, for diagnosis. I think that those statistics are quite stark. Um, but what is interesting is, you know, it, it, with a test that that is sort of universal, because even 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 if you do have the advanced diagnostics and precision biopsies that that I refer to that make the PSA test, you know, possibly more let or maybe I should say less onerous or less harmful, if you don't have those, and this goes back to the parity issue, then it's kind of a non-starter, isn't it? So in which case your point about a new test is probably a good way to go.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, I was just talking about it yesterday. In fact, the kind of rolling out MRI machines across the UK would cost billions of pounds, and it's billions of pounds that we don't have right now. So you've mm. got to work with what you've got. Mm. Um, and if you compare, when we compared the list of what men would be offered in Blackpool compared to what they're offered in South Cambridgeshire, it's a, it's a very short list in Blackpool. Um, so uh, your point is exactly right that it's sure that's that's all well and good when you can go for an MRI scan five days later after doing a PSA. but if you're going to wait several months for that, that's not acceptable.
0: Mm, yeah, no I understand well let's let's just talk a little bit more about your organization itself. Can you tell me what some of the some of your greatest successes have been in, in recent years, say the last five years?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you already mentioned that we've expanded our research actually five times now. We're now um, we're running just four research projects in twenty late 2017. We're now running 23 research projects. So we've expanded the amount of research we, we're doing, but I think we've also expanded the quality of the research that we're able to do. And that's mainly been because we've added in a much broader network of advisors, peer reviewers, patients to help us make sure that we're funding the most the, the things that have got the potential to really move the needle for men mm-hmm. uh, and um in that patient perspective so that we're uh, able to ensure that w- we're, we're doing things that will make a difference to people's lives in the long run particularly mm. around that. Quality. so
0: can, can you describe some of the projects that you're currently supporting you said tw- 23 that's a lot can you give us an example of um of some of those that you think are most promising
1: yeah, I, I think you will obviously be aware that prostate cancer can take many different forms, and you can have some slow-growing cancers that um, you may not want to do anything about for a while, um, and you can have some very virulent cancers that you may want to do something about um, very quickly. So we're, we're funding an AI project out of the University of East Anglia in combination with Manchester and Oxford, trying to subdivide the cancers into tigers and pussy cats. So which ones are likely to kill you and which ones aren't? Um, Then That will obviously help clinicians further on down the line being able to say, well, actually, your cancer has this particular genetic subtype. When we've analysed all of these cancers in the past, it is likely to grow or it is likely to stay very small for a very long period of time. And you shouldn't go through incontinence and impotence for the rest of your life, taking out a cancer that's not going to do you any harm.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. that that phrase tigers and cats" seems to apply to a number of cancers do you think it's a particularly apropos for, for prostate cancer or just in the nature of this these extremes
1: yeah definitely i think the um i'm sure many of your listeners will be aware that prostate cancer can be a very slow growing cancer and so sometimes you can um have a prostate cancer and not increase in size over a decade mm. so yeah particularly for prostate cancer that's important
0: Mm. And you mentioned that, um, you know, um, a good part of your research involves patients themselves. How do patients or or indeed former patients get involved in your research?
1: Yeah, in all sorts of ways, uh, setting the strategy right through to the priorities of the research. This important part of the scientific advisory committee, they join the scientific advisory committee in order to help make decisions they give feedback, actually, uh, to the researchers. So the researchers submit proposals. We analyze them to try and select the ones that are most in line with our strategy and have the most potential for impact. And the, the patients actually sit around and give direct feedback to the researchers themselves to say, actually, this particular thing would make such a difference to our quality of life or to allow the researchers to go back and think again about which, one, which ways in which they could um improve their proposal before they come back to
0: us. So how how do the patients find out about you? How do you actually make that connection Do you do outreach? And I mean, how would a patient who's listening to this say, "Wow, I'd really like to get involved with um, prostate cancer researches initiatives? What would they do?
1: Yeah, I mean, lots of patients, already we do significant amounts of outreach work. We get involved with um, healthcare professionals British Association of Urology Nurses. We obviously have our own um, outreach campaigns, so events and community driven activities, we work in partnerships. But if if a patient wants to get in contact with us, info at um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. pcr.org.uk. Tell us that you'd like to be involved in our research and our research team would love to hear from you.
0: And, and most of the research that you um fund and and um, oversee is done at various universities or other institutions across the country.
1: Yeah, and we try and make sure that we're not we don't get um see the bright lights of Oxford and Cambridge and London and think, okay, well, that's where we should put our money. We try and make sure we assess the science for w- what it is and the applications that come to us. So we have research in Scotland, North, uh, Northern Ireland, Wales, um, and across the UK. So, it's it's really nice broad focus of early stage, late stage career researchers with a whole range of different ideas dotted right across the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah, oh, that's that's exciting. So, I mean, what sort of breakthroughs do you foresee from from these applications? I mean, it's quite exciting to be able to. Uh... You know, to assess all these different applications that are coming in, and has that led to some real excitement about potential breakthroughs?
1: Yeah, definitely. And when you see the applications and they put something to you that you've never seen before, I think that's that's the most interesting thing. Is kind of uh, you look at the history of cancer, is kind of it's breakthroughs that no one expects that really, they're really are in, interesting. And, and mm-hmm. the scientific advisory committee kind of sits down. Everyone says, "Wow, this is something we hadn't expected." And that's that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, we've got a project that we're funding up in Newcastle which looks at the sugars that cement themselves around cancers and how much that has an impact on whether a cancer cancer becomes aggressive or not. um so kind of a, a bit kind of left field kind of ideas that come to you mm-hmm. um AI diagnostic machines that analyze results and find drugs that have kept can- people's cancers at bay discover what environmental factors uh lead to cancers. I think that the kind of the ability of um AI to now analyze such larger chunks of data was never possible mm-hmm. in the past. It opens up a whole range of different um, opportunities. And mm. the more personalized medicines as well that we've seen we've already spoken about alaparib and pluvicto, uh, making sure that the new treatments that are coming to us have less side effects on people because um, I, I think we we see so much treatment regret where people have said, uh, um, I'm really upset that I made this particular choice yeah. and I wish I had another one.
0: Yeah, there was a study just um, published in the last couple of weeks about that. You may have seen that um, in one of the major urological uh, medical journals. Um, and it was based on a you know, very wide-reaching survey. So, yes, I completely agree with you. I mean that that does sound interesting. I mean you've mentioned AI a couple couple different times during this conversation. Is is um, is this kind of across the board, or do you see it focused in in particular particular area? You know, back to the large data sets that you know it it gives us the opportunity to look at. What what are you seeing that AI is going to help in the short term?
1: Yeah, and I think uh, we see a lot of proposals around the need within the NHS, where obviously there are huge pressures and not enough people to analyze the uh, things coming out of diagnostic machines. So we see a lot of proposals around that type of thing um, yeah. because we, we know that um, we don't have the right uh, amount of staff within the NHS and therefore a lot of the delays are coming from just not having the people. So if you could get an AI machine that's um, quicker, cheaper, um, more effective than a human being, then we we should be able to save a lot of lives from it. So, every, yeah, we see plenty of proposals around that kind of work.
0: So, I mean, just to bring this to an end, what, what messages do you would you like to give to men that are duly diagnosed with prostate cancer?
1: I think one of the interesting things is that when you sit down, we do an event every year where we sit down with researchers um, and with men with prostate cancer patients. Um, and... They always come out, back, out of it and really enthused, and so do the researchers. And um, the patients themselves say it's amazing. There's just this whole army of people out there trying to improve your life and quality of life. And I think that's the message I'd like to give to people. Is there are a lot of people out there trying to do incredible things in order to improve people's lives. So please be aware that there's a big support network out there that you should try and get engaged with.
0: Well, thank you for that. That's very positive, and I'm sure our listeners will will welcome it. And I will put the notes um, about your organization on our on our website so people can follow up. I, I really want to thank you for speaking with me today, Oliver. It's been it's been really helpful, and um, good luck with all the all the work you're doing.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Claire.
0: A transcript of this interview is available on our website, along with links to prostate cancer research and further information on diagnostics and treatment for prostate cancer, as well as additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.